You're listening to A Light at the Other Side, where we're sharing stories of resilience, healing, and hope. We share the experiences of adoptees, domestic violence survivors, military veterans, and more, so some episodes may contain potentially triggering accounts of trauma. To fully appreciate the light, we must sometimes peer into the dark. On today's episode, the opening credits. I'm going to take this episode to introduce myself, the podcast, and a bit more background into the stories you've heard and that you will hear along the way. My name is Melissa Corrigan. I'm a 42-year-old mom of six living in coastal Virginia. I'm married to the one that almost got away and happier by the day. My life hasn't always been such bliss. I've been through foster care and failed adoption. I've been homeless. I served in the U.S. Navy. I served my community by working in and with nonprofit organizations for over a decade before beginning my own consulting firm. Post-COVID, my writing career was born. I was born in the early 80s in the rural Appalachian foothills of upstate South Carolina. Called the Dark Triangle for a reason, those dark woods hide more than moonshine stills. Family secrets run like cricks through the hills. My family was poor and struggled. My brother and I were taken into state's custody and began a tumultuous journey through the hellish landscape of foster homes. We thought perhaps our luck had changed when we found out we were to be adopted, but we weren't quite so lucky. Our adopters were strict authoritarians who preferred physical discipline. They had already adopted one child, a boy five years my senior, and I was molested by him for five years of my childhood. As I entered young adulthood, it became clear the relationship between myself and my adopters had become too sour, so I was on my own. I found myself on the street and calling up friends to hop from couch to couch. I worked third shift at an IHOP until I saved enough money to get into an apartment as a roommate to a guy in a classified ad who'd been on the radio team for BBC in Brazil or somewhere in South America. With a mattress on the floor and a broken futon, I began my life. My life. Without anyone to answer to or anyone to help, I found myself balancing between between crushing self-pity, helplessness, and panic, and surges of independent fervor, pushing myself to keep going for just one more day, one more shift, one more hour. Just keep going. That's always been my mantra. As scary as it was, being completely dependent on myself for survival, I still relish the freedom more. After having every facet of my personality and life controlled to a microscopic level, the freedom to just be myself, to discover who that even was, was worth every night I slept hungry or pawned precious possessions to make rent. The freedom was absolutely intoxicating. Discovering who I was, I began forming a deep respect for myself in a space where previously low self-esteem and uncertainty lived. I was a hard worker. I took pride in my work no matter what it was. When I rolled silverware, they were all uniformly tight and neat. When I waited tables, I had to be the best. I always had great tips and my employers liked me because I simply had good work ethic. I was just as hardworking in my personal life. I found creative ways to make cool stuff for my apartment. I began collecting beer bottle caps at the bar where I worked and I started making beer bottle stuff, belts, tables, whatever I could attach beer caps to, I did it. So I made an end table for my apartment, and when some friends saw it, they asked how much for one. I turned a little profit making unique stuff. I also made my own clothes, sewing by hand as I couldn't afford a sewing machine. I repurposed thrift finds by ripping off sleeves or adding panels of fabric. 
I was finding who I was and how I expressed myself through fashion. I had hard lines on drugs. I smoked weed, but that was it. I didn't partake in the raging ecstasy trend at the time. I didn't pop oxys, and I only sniffed snow twice, and I hated it. I left the drugs alone. No matter how hard things got, how depressed I was, how hopeless things felt at the moment, I never turned to drugs. I'm not judging those who have. It's just my personal point of pride that I set a line for myself and didn't cross it. Even things were really bad. I helped others. Even though I was living hand to mouth, if a friend needed food, I'd bring them something or invite them to come over and eat. I gave people money, never expecting it back. Even after everything I'd already experienced in life that could have made me hard and mean, I wasn't. I was kind and generous. I was proud of that. So in discovering these facets of what made me, me, it was like getting to know an entirely new person. Who was I when I was out from under my adopter's control? I was a good person after all. I wasn't manipulative or unpleasant like they made me out to be. I wasn't what they said at all, actually. I was in a space of reaching a crossroads in late summer 2001, trying to figure out where I was going in life, when I was late to work one September day, and my future was rewritten for me when, as I was speeding across town to work, a plane flew into a building on American soil. I signed up to enlist and had to wait over a year for a bed to open up for a female in basic training, so I lived my life and enjoyed my last bits of freedom before my adult life began. I served in the U.S. Navy from 2003 to 2007, and I say that with a great deal of pride, just as President John F. Kennedy did. I met an enormous amount of amazing people, my husband included, and it was just a profound learning, changing, and edifying experience. I served on board the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower and the now decommissioned Hilo Squadron HC-4. I truly loved it. I loved the sea. I loved the routine and structure. I loved not having to figure out what to wear every day. I just really enjoyed it. Had I not become a mother during my enlistment, I probably would have stayed in the Navy for 20 years and begged to be stationed abroad the whole time. That's for another life, I suppose. What I loved about my service in the Navy is not to be confused with my opinions and feelings about the ethical implications of the war in which we were engaging. I was active duty during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, both of which have many questionable motives and mistruths woven throughout. I was proud, personally, of stepping up to serve. I was not always proud of the actions of the military and our leaders at that time. I do write some pieces on exploring that dichotomy and the space between patriotism and realism. I took a unique job for about a year after leaving active duty service. I wanted something totally different, and different is what I got. I worked for a self-made millionaire, an online guru type who sold books and courses and such, who lived in Virginia Beach. I was his personal IT and assistant. It was most definitely an eye-opening and interesting experience. In the following years, I went back to college to pursue a bachelor's in philosophy and began my work at nonprofits. Through the following decade, I would serve as a volunteer, employee, board member, and consultant in and with a couple dozen nonprofit organizations. I loved the outlet for my humanitarian interests and passion, but I became jaded and disillusioned with the petty politics and ego problems that can run rampant in many nonprofit circles. As COVID descended upon us, my world became very small. I lost all my clients due to shutdowns. I was a new mother to our youngest, a baby girl. 
postpartum depression was already setting in when the world ground to a halt and we were all plunged into this sort of social depression. So I got over my head in the darkness for the first time in my life. Always a bit of a crunchy person in terms of resorting to pharmaceuticals, I finally caved and began courting Mr. Wellbutrin. He buoyed my spirits substantially and enabled me to get up and get back to my life. We still see one another, if you're wondering. He's still a dependable pal. As the world reopened and the gears of everything ground back to life, I found myself floundering a bit. Without direction, officially a housewife, homemaker, stay-at-home mom, no career or business to run. I began writing, on medium specifically, and something struck this time. For the first time, people really responded to my writing. I connected. Something landed that had never quite made it before. I began gathering, gathering followers at a healthy clip and actually making real substantial money doing it. As I've built my portfolio on Medium, I found pockets of community that really resonated. Adoptees, veterans, people who have also gone through significant trauma and found their way through the darkness. I started two publications, Adoptere, which exists to uplift and elevate the voices of adoptees to audit the narrative around the institution of adoption, and Served, which exists to uplift and elevate the voices of veterans to audit the narrative around the institution of the United States military and those who have served under that banner. For both of those groups, the existing narrative runs deep and strong, and it largely ignores the reality lived by those who experience the institution most deeply. For adoptees, we watch for-profit adoption agencies dominate the narrative around adoption, ignoring the very real trauma that is inherent in adoption to glorify pseudo-Christian values and giving birth above any ramifications to that child or the mother once that birth has taken place. For veterans, we watch politicians and weapons manufacturers keep everyone whipped in a constant state of frenzy and fear, demanding war and blood when our sons will pay the price, and with no regard for the lived experiences of those who have served. It's time to audit those narratives. This is where my podcast comes in. Up to this point, The Light at the Other Side has shared my stories, and I'll continue to do so. But consider this an open call for your stories. I'm seeking true accounts, especially from adoptees and veterans, but also anyone who has survived an abusive relationship, domestic violence, intimate violence, a traumatic childhood, and is now solidly on the other side and living an emotionally and mentally stable and prosperous life. Notice I didn't say perfect. My own life is far from perfect, and yet I feel I'm healed and have processed enough to say that I'm on the other side. I've gone through the worst of the worst. There will surely be dark days ahead, but I've come to terms with the worst of my trauma and turned to the light. I would love to share your stories, either in my voice or yours. I'd love to have guests and present thoughtful interviews so that my listeners know it's not just me. There are many, many people out there who have faced down dark days and emerged from the other side, lighter, brighter, happier, and healthier. In that vein, I've decided to read one of my older pieces, that explains a little more why I write what I write. I don't do this to make you squirm. Why I write, why I share, and why it has nothing to do with you. I write to keep myself alive. If you followed any part of my journey in the last few years, you know at least part of the story. For everyone else, here's a brief recap. I am adopted. My brother and I went through eight separate foster homes, most abusive in some form, before being adopted by a strict conservative pastor's family in rural South Carolina, 
where abuse continued up to reaching adulthood. After leaving home, I joined the Navy, served four years wherein I got married and started a family, and then I launched into super busy mode, raising kids and working in the nonprofit sector for 10 years before starting my own consulting firm. This proved successful for a few years until COVID made the world come to a crashing halt and shuttered millions of businesses, including my entire client list at the time, which in turn forced me to shutter my business. I became a full-time stay-at-home mom, and then came the biggest emotional and mental deconstructing and reconstructing period of my life, as all the busy, busy, go, go, go of my life stopped basically overnight, and I was forced to deal with the mess of my childhood before it consumed me whole. From the youngest memory I can conjure, I remember always being incensed with the way I was treated by people around me. I've always had this deep sense of justice and fairness. I was very cognizant from a very young age that I was being treated in ways that were unacceptable, unfair, cruel, and harmful, and it caused a deep, deep fire of both resentment and determination to smolder inside me. I knew I deserved better, and yet whenever I would demand better, I'd be treated as if I were high-maintenance, difficult, disobedient, with unrealistic expectations. I now know those were the manipulative words of abusers who were angry that I was standing up for myself, and I did, in fact, deserve better. And since I have moved on, I've found the proper treatment I deserve, and it turns out it's not so crazy to demand basic respect and proper treatment. I kept a lot of stuff bottled up. I tried to ignore the festering inner wounds, and I stayed busy to keep from focusing on it. All that worked pretty well until COVID stopped our world in its tracks and I was face to face with everything I'd avoided. The past few years have been a messy progress of untangling this big web I had around my wounds. Well, they did the best they knew how. A sentiment easily used to brush off the treatment of abusive parents. Until you become a parent and you begin to realize you knew when you were messing up as a parent and you felt shitty about it and you put in effort to fix it. And they just didn't. They knew they were being abusive, manipulative, and controlling, and they just kept doing it. Never an apology. Never an attempt to change problematic, harmful behaviors. Never an attempt to construct a relationship built on healthy expectations and mutual respect. So your soul begins to recognize, with an agonizing, deep ache and a wail of eternal sorrow, that this is never going to happen. You're never getting an apology. You're never getting the relationship you wanted with parental figures. You're truly on your own. And so the grieving process begins. Denial, anger, sorrow, all of it. For people who are alive and well, they just don't give a shit if you are. It's hard to not let that define you. It's hard not to become the anger, become the sorrow. It creeps up, it consumes you, and before you know it, you're in a dark hole and can't see a way out. Looking in the mirror is painful. You wear your pain etched on your face. Deep bags under your eyes tell a story of the nights you lie awake and ask the universe, what did I do? What did my parents or grandparents do to deserve this? Whose karmic debt am I paying? Because the idea that people just hurt others without remorse and for absolutely no reason is just incomprehensible to you. Because you are not them. One of the first substantial steps of my healing was accepting that the pain I felt, the recognition of the injustices I'd endured, was my inner moral code working just as it should. I was not, as I'd frequently been told, broken. 
In fact, I was working just fine. There was, however, some major issues with the moral codes of people who abused others and then tried to make their victims feel they were somehow responsible for their own abuse. Once I worked out that what had happened to me was not my fault and not some kind of indication of my character, I began talking about it. A lot of the shame melted away, a lot, and I felt so much freer talking about secrets that had long lay dormant. And it all came out. It came spilling out in so many ways, in writing, in conversations, in art, in exercise, and working out, and pushing myself to pain and exhaustion to try to purge it all. Many people, especially people from my small hometown, some who knew my adoptive parents, were pretty horrified by my first public stories shared on Facebook and my blog about the sexual, physical, mental, and verbal abuse I went through in their home. Many of them weren't horrified by the actual content, however. They were horrified I was talking about it. That's in the past. Don't air dirty laundry. Just move on. No need to talk trash about people who took you in from foster care. These are all actual comments I've received when I shared hard details about my life. For a while, I debated just doing that, shutting up and finding a different way to process. Then I picked up a book. Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, and this quote leapt off the page and has become an absolute cornerstone in my life. You own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. I'm a writer. I always have been from my earliest memories. My grandfather bought me a typewriter to write my stories at eight years old. My earliest teachers nurtured and fed this talent. I've won contests and scholarships with nothing but the words in my pen. Don't tell me to stop writing. I won't tell you to stop breathing. Writing is how I have to do this. So I kept going. And I kept getting messages in my inbox. Only there was a new tone to them. I went through the same thing. My adoptive parents also abused me. I wish I could talk about this like you are. I was also molested. I don't think I could ever talk about it openly. Please keep talking. Some of us can't. I'm living vicariously through your sharing. And then it got even better. I started seeing some of these people talking about their struggle openly, first with comments on my stories and then with posts on their own, peeling away the layers and shedding themselves of the weight that never was theirs to bear in the first place. If you don't understand why I write about uncomfortable things, about rape and molestation, physical and verbal abuse, the horrors of foster care and the inadequacies and failings of the industrial adoption complex, which I believe is state-sanctioned human trafficking. Simply be grateful that you don't understand. But don't tell me to stop talking. You don't have that right. You have the right to stop following me, to unfriend me, to block me, and simply not read what I choose to share. But you don't get to dictate how other people heal. This healing journey is several years along now. I've made so many deep connections with people I've known for 35 years, and some I've only known for a moment, but the connections are built on truth, sharing our lived reality, spoken and received with compassion and empathy and respect. I've learned an incredible amount about myself and who I am as a person, and I am proud of me. I'm not perfect, but I've come a long way against really nearly impossible odds. Here I stand, despite the best efforts of a few very bad people who tried with all their might to break me, to shut my mouth forever. Here I am. 
and I'm not going anywhere but up and up and up because I will keep going and growing and rising and shining. They say the best revenge is success, and if success is measured by feeling immense love when you look in the mirror, I'm already there. I wrote that piece in July of 2023, and I went on to write a hundred more pieces, (laughs) not all about uh, my trauma, some about my children, some about the very institution of adoption, some about the great experiences I had in the military. Um, But beginning this journey of simply beginning to open up and write about what has happened to me has just opened a floodgate in terms of community response. The amount of messages, the amount of comments, the amount of people that I've had reaching out to let me know that hearing someone else talk about these things openly and without shame has changed the way they view their own healing journey. I believe, as I grew up in mostly rural South Carolina, heavily evangelical Christian environment, the concept of shame is built into that environment. We aren't supposed to air dirty laundry. We um, aren't supposed to talk about the bad things that go on behind closed doors in our homes. And we most certainly are not supposed to hold our elders accountable for their behavior. So I'm cognizant of the fact that some of the behaviors that trickle down to me, some of the physical discipline may have been something that, um, my parents, my adoptive parents experienced. That doesn't make it okay that they chose to perpetuate that cycle. I'm certain that the physical discipline they received was not uh, welcome by them. And I'm sure they reflect on that with less than positive thoughts. So as a parent, I had a real moment of um, uh, clarity, I guess you could say, I have a child who's 19. Uh, Shortly after he turned 18, you know, I had prepared him as best I could. I had given him detailed information and education on finances, managing your finances, your credit, you know, everything I could think of to best prepare him with knowledge to enter the adult world. And at the same time, he lives with us and he knows that he can continue to live with us uh, as long as it's feasible for everyone involved and as long as there's a general shared sense of respect in the home. Um, and so shortly after his 18th birthday, I was I was taking a shower and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, you know, how I wasn't quite certain he was on the right path. He was signed up for community college at the time and getting ready to start classes and wasn't sure that was the the best path for him, but um, it it dawned on me that it never occurred to me to simply kick him out. It had never occurred to me to thrust him into the adult world with no information, no resources, no support, and that's what had been done to me. So I realized in that moment that I had been approaching parenting from an entirely different paradigm than the way I was parented, because I actually consider my child's holistic well-being 
Is he physically healthy? Is he mentally healthy? Is he emotionally healthy? Is he handling the things in his life as they come up well? Or is he handling them poorly? And if he's handling them poorly, how can I help with that? And that's not even taking into account the concept of essentially putting him out on the street with knowing that he has nowhere to go, knowing he has no money, knowing he has no job. Why would I do that? And it really broke something inside of me in that moment when it was a fresh level of realization how little my adopters truly cared about me because none of that was a concern when I was 18, 19. Um, it was essentially, we're done. We've, uh, we fulfilled our obligation to the state and you can go now and good luck with whatever you choose to do with your life. I was homeless for a while and because I had so many great friends at the university of South Carolina, I did, um, generally always have somewhere to sleep. Sometimes that place to sleep was in somebody's car. Um, I stayed in the dorms until, you know, RAs would catch on and kick me out. So I would stay in someone's car, but I could always sneak back in to use the shower. And so as being unhoused goes, I feel like I was pretty lucky and had it extremely well compared to a lot of other people. In fact, for a long time, I wouldn't even use the term homeless, but through my work in the nonprofit community, you know, I did not have a home address. I didn't have a home of my own. So I was unhoused. I did have great friends that usually looked out for me and made sure that I was taken care of and had some place to sleep every night, but I was definitely unhoused. And from everything that I can see, my adopters didn't care. They, it just, they just didn't care to know that there's this child that you've committed in a court of law, at least uh, committed to being their family for life. And to know that this human being is now out on the street with no secure housing, it's totally unfathomable to me to do that to my child. So I kind of had this really heartbreaking awakening in that moment shortly after my son turned 18 that I could never do to him what was done to me. And knowing the level of um, um, the lack of care, I guess, is, is what it is. They just didn't care. They didn't care if I was homeless. They didn't care if I had food to eat. They didn't care if I was doing well. That you know, There was just nothing. There was just a void where there should have been a parental concern. Through the years, I've met a lot of people who went through the same experience, and they're not all adopted. Biological parents do this as well, just kick their kids out at 18 um, with no support. So I'm not saying it's an entirely uh, unique experience to adoptees, but it is in what I've found in the conversations I've had staggeringly common um, that one of two things happens in a lot of adoptee relationships is the adoptee continues behaving they, the way they did as a child uh, to continue pleasing the adopters and, sort of, and they sort of have this fake, very surface level relationship where they're simply pleasing the 
uh, adopters, but they don't have a genuine relationship and their uh, adopters really don't know them as people. There's a very fake uh, sort of interaction to keep those lines of communication open and to keep those quote unquote family relationships alive or what happened to me? It, you know, we reach 18 and they say, okay, I made an obligation to the state. I'm a commitment to the state that I would raise you to 18 and I'm done. You're 18 and now I'm done. And it's shockingly common, shockingly common uh, how often this happens. And having a child who, like I said, is now 19, I can't fathom doing that to him. I, I just genuinely can't imagine making him struggle. This has implications well into adulthood, well into our financial health throughout our year, our years, our earning potential. I mean, there are ramifications decades down the line from being, you know, on your own at 18 with nothing to depend on, no one to depend on and, and no resources. So you have to pull yourself up with nothing. And I'll go into that in future episodes. But these are the type of stories that I want to share because this is information that needs to be public knowledge. This needs to be just as common knowledge as the entire narrative around adoption that has been guided and, and put out in mass by pseudo-Christian for-profit private adoption agencies. Those are the largest source of uh, this sort of false and harmful narrative around adoption. If you have stories that you'd like to share, and maybe you don't, you don't want to record your voice. You don't want to call, you, you know, if given your permission, I would love to read your story for you because I want so many people to understand that it's not just me that's experienced these things. I would love to share your story. I would love to put a voice to the experiences that you've had, even if you're not comfortable with it being your voice. The important thing is these stories are shared. I don't want this podcast to be all about me and sharing my life experiences. I am going to share my life experiences because I do think they're valuable and I think people can benefit from hearing them. But I'm not the only one. And the purpose of this entire project, it's beyond this podcast, you know, starting my publications on Medium to uplift the voices of others who have experienced these things. There's the podcast. There's the medium publications. I have a guided journal to help people work through these years of trauma and get to a point where you are holistically more healthy, mentally healthy, emotionally healthy. This is a multi-media platform project, and I want and need your help to make it successful. Only hearing my stories is going to get old, right? Um it's in the sense of community. It's in the community that we fully recognize we are not alone. When we hear not one person's stories, but five, 10, 15, 100, then we truly grasp that the negative experiences we may have lived through in our life are not some shameful secret to hide in a dark closet, okay? They're a trauma that was done to you and you deserve the ability to work through them and find a way to lay them down and continue on with your life in a healthier manner. And that's the point of my project here. 
If you've already been listening, I cannot tell you how cool that is. It's so cool to see people listening in from all around the globe. Four days after my podcast launch, four days, I checked the analytics and we have listeners in Australia, in Russia, in the UK, in Belgium, in Puerto Rico, and in Canada, right? And then all across the U.S. from sea to freaking shining sea. And it thrills me. It thrills me that people are tuning in and finding their way through the darkness. I invite you to join me for future episodes, and I invite you to reach out to me. I'm going to give you my email address right now, okay? And I want you to email me if you have a story to share, if you'd like me to read your story, if you'd like to coordinate a time for you to read your story. I'm based in coastal Virginia, but I think through technology, we can set something up where we can record your story and uh, get it incorporated here. So here we go. Whenever you got something to write with, my email address is it's just Melissa K at gmail.com. That's I-T-S-J-U-S-T-M-E-L-I-S-S-A-K at gmail.com. And I'm so serious. I want you to email me. I want you to reach out and send me your stories. And let's find a way to amplify your story so you can be part of this movement and letting people know that the entire world isn't darkness and pain. The entire world isn't trauma there is life beyond that, okay? There is healing and there is happiness beyond the pain that we've lived through. Thank you for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you guys next week.